0: Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today I'm joined by Dr. Ben Bickman who is a professor and teaches information that you're going to want to learn about with respect to the keto diet and how it affects your physiology. So welcome and thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, Dr. Mercola, thanks for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here.
0: So for those of uh,
1: watching who aren't quite familiar with you,
0: why don't you give us a brief history so they can place the information you're going to provide us in, con- in proper context.
1: Yeah, so my main interest historically, well, well, early on was looking at how the body adapts to obesity. That was my master's thesis in which was my master's degree was exercise science here at Brigham Young University. And then I sensed this deficiency with regards to uh, biochemistry. And I ended up pursuing a PhD in bioenergetics at East Carolina University under this wonderful scientist named Linus Dome. And his focus had been looking at how lipids cause insulin resistance. And that was a a very expressed interest of mine because I thought this was starting to connect um, or starting to explain why and well how, more accurately, how the body is becoming insulin resistant. Um, in the midst of weight gain in the midst of obesity because that was the kind of obvious to me at the time the connection was how is obesity connected to type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance is that connection and I, I, I so I, during my PhD we were looking at inflammation and in people who were losing weight during uh, following gastric bypass procedures um, and, and how inf- improved inflammation is is likely part of the um, improvements in insulin sensitivity that people see post bypass and then i followed that up with a postdoctoral fellowship with duke university but at their this kind of sister campus that they have um, in singapore of all places so there and mm. in, in the national a collaborative school with so it's the duke national university of singapore and they had this focus on cardiometabolic disorders and so i did more lipid induced insulin resistance looking at inflammation as a particular mediator there. Um, they're in Singapore for a few years and just loved it. It was a wonderful experience. My mentor was a man named Scott Summers. Uh, had a great experience. And then in 2011, my alma mater, BYU, came knocking and, and they wanted to do more diabetes research and I kind of fit the requirements. Um, what they were looking for and my, my wife was delighted to come back to a state where she could ski, not much skiing in Singapore. Uh, <laughs>
0: So, but there's it, good vitamin Ds? Expo- oh, yeah,
1: no kidding. Yeah, mind you, it doesn't take a guy like me very long to get all my vitamin D. You know, I just walk yeah. outside for a few minutes, and I'm, I've reached my quota. Yeah. But anyway, that's, that got me uh, essentially to where I am now. Well, kind of. I've continued to focus very heavily on insulin, and mm-hmm. one of my um, interests is looking at uh, how insulin is pathogenic, we need it. We need it. The body is designed to have it, but we also can't be um, more and more within within the clinical realm, the biomedical realm. We can't be. We can't keep ignoring it, which is what yeah. too many seem to seem to be doing. Well, I,
0: I definitely want to dive into insulin, but let, let's just first finish up your bio because I want to yeah, frame yeah. your information. So, I mean, you, it's obvious from your bio, what you've shared so far that you're really well. Uh, trained in the research side of this and i'm just wondering if you could just briefly comment on how you or if or how you personally apply this because it appears you do and with respect not only the diet but with the exercise component
1: yeah yeah so um basically my studying insulin it was this sort of painful uh growth to 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 at one point eventually kind of step back and say okay if 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 I really am getting this conviction based on my own research that insulin is key to not only diabetes, but to almost every chronic disease, what is the best way to control insulin? And that is when I just insisted on only looking at published human clinical data, not rodents, not cells, not epidemiology, just clinical data. And the low carb diet was just this, um, this very effective way to do that. And that then got me interested in asking questions about ketones which is what my lab is doing and and we can get into that too how ketones are regulated by insulin but yeah so basically it's this conviction that insulin matters that controlling carbohydrates was the most effective way to do that and then asking myself well do i care and and i do i mean it was basically me saying this is such a conviction these two principles that i need if I really believe it, I better be the one who's practicing this. And and sure enough, at, at middle age, it's it's helped me stay healthy. And mind you, I lost my hair when I was about 20. And man, that was a motivation to stay fit. I, <laughs> I, I did not want to be bald and out of shape. So I figured it was time to really get serious about it anyway. So a, a low carb diet for me was about eight years ago, right around the time I got hired here um, at BYU. And, and that about five years ago, is when my research started focusing more and more on ketones, with a couple papers published now, but some really cool ones still to come yeah. with, with regards to metabolic rate and. and well, fat. maybe
0: we can touch on those if we have some time, but you seem to be one of the leaders in the field now, so I appreciate the opportunity to, to dialogue with you. And let's go into the insulin component now, because it really seems to be a central thesis of what you're uh, discussing in the public. And just to frame the question, you know, there's not many people who get this. Certainly the, the vast majority of the phys- physicians and public don't understand this, that insulin is the core disease, as you say. And there was a, a pathologist who's since passed, Dr. Joseph Kraft, who uh, published a book uh, and really had this insulin sensitivity assay, which suggests that 80% of the population is insulin resistant. So I'm wondering if you agree with that, and he, and he did a, essentially a, an insulin version of the oral glucose tolerance, yep. of measuring insulin instead of glucose, and came up to that conclusion. So if that's true, I mean, this is the central core of all these chronic degenerative diseases, diabetes, uh, of course, obesity, heart disease, cancer, and, you know, Alzheimer's, you, you name it, it's a, it's, a, it's a factor. So why don't you address that because it seems that this insulin resistance is foundational to managing healthcare today, because if you fail to address it, you're missing the boat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I heard that uh, someone described insulin resistance as uh, prosperity's plague and what a wonderful way to describe it. But yeah, like you said, uh, insulin resistance is at the core of virtually every chronic disease. When I teach this to my students, in fact, we just finished this section in the, in the pathophysiology class I teach here, uh, I kind of put insulin resistance at this, in the core and then around it, I have all these chronic diseases, what I call this wheel of misfortune. And, and really, uh, the most common cancers, like you said, prostate and breast cancers, those always, almost always, you never know with cancer, almost always will heavily express by six or seven times the number of insulin receptors. And mm. insulin is promoting that, the growth of the tumor. And, and, and with dementia, it, the, the connection between insulin resistance and Alzheimer's is so tight that people refer to it as type 3 diabetes. Uh, and, and with sarcopenia, we, have, um, we know that if, if a muscle becomes insulin resistant, that actually diminishes insulin's ability to promote the anabolic production of proteins within the muscle. Osteoarthritis, um, we, uh, fatty liver disease, the most common form of liver disease. But all of this matters because insulin resistance, as you're touching on, especially with Dr. Joseph Kraft, and it is so appropriate to mention him in a conversation of insulin resistance, but we... We know that about roughly half, if not more, of all adults in the U.S. are insulin resistant. I just got back from a sabbatical in Singapore, uh, and that's relevant because Singapore actually has per capita worse type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance than the U.S. does. I gave talks in the Middle East, and the most diabetic insulin resistant countries on the planet are in the Middle East. And then even Southeast Asia, in, in the Philippines, in Cambodia, Vietnam, these countries where here in the U.S., we'd think those are pretty hard to do, you know, less developed countries, and surely they're not suffering from these similar metabolic problems, but they are. What's unique, though, as we look across ethnicities, depending a little bit on genetics and a little bit on diet, there are these, this, this uh, difference in how ethnicities can handle getting fat. And as I sometimes like to joke, if you want to be fat – You want to be caucasian because caucasian appear to be able to get more obese than other ethnicities and generally maintain insulin sensitivity yet you look at say a chinese ethnicity a prominent ethnicity in singapore if you have the caucasian guy and the chinese guy they're both getting fat the chinese guy's fat tissue has become far more pathogenic Um, than than the Caucasian. And part of that is how they store fat and how their fat is growing. But that's a whole other topic. But nevertheless, this is a problem globally. And we, we have to have our medical practitioners start appreciating, especially mentioning Joseph Kraft, the utility in measuring insulin. Because our focus on measuring glucose is having us miss the mark. As someone's becoming insulin resistant, their insulin is climbing, climbing, climbing. But it's enough to keep their glucose in check And because we always look at glucose, we don't catch the disease until they become so insulin resistant that no amount of their own insulin is enough to keep the glucose in check. And now the glucose starts to climb 10 years later, perhaps. And that's when we detect the problem. We're looking at the wrong marker.
0: Okay, so let's talk about some of the practical implications. Um, And that is the implementation primarily is what's typically known as the keto diet and I definitely want to dive deep into this because there's some massive public misperception on this area and I think is the most recently uh, represented by Jillian Michaels, the celebrity personal trainer who's come up pretty vigorously opposed to keto. So, you know, I'd like you to dive into that with respect to the public perception and the reality of keto and why they're missing it because they're just essentially getting an over an overview when they're not getting into the details and how crucial this approach is to optimizing your health.
1: Yeah. For me, the benefit of a low carb ketogenic diet is that it addresses the endocrine aspect of metabolic health for too long. We've only talked and Jillian Michaels is a very good example of this. We've only the, 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 the message has been completely focused on calorie number. And it is this idea that if you can simply put a person into caloric deficiency, they will lose weight, problem solved. uh, And then you walk away from the problem, you know, kind of clean your hands of it. But we know that has long-term consequences. Again, with Jillian Michaels efforts to have people to force this dramatic weight loss, there are lasting. um, I I hate to kind of use these sorts of terms, but there's lasting metabolic damage. Mm -hmm. Normally when someone starts to gain weight back, their metabolic rate will go back up. And that's not happening in the people that she um, basically starved into weight loss. But nevertheless, the power of the low carbohydrate diet is that it addresses the endocrine component. And as important as calorie number is, and I can appreciate the laws of thermodynamics. In fact, I dare say I can appreciate them more than most people. Um, Nevertheless, we cannot ignore the relevance of hormones, especially insulin. It's one thing to eat energy and account for how it's being used, but we have to realize that insulin is what dictates what we do with the energy we have, the energy we have stored and the energy we're consuming. um, Insulin has its strong, capable hands right on the steering wheel of what the body does with the energy that it has available. So to me, an upside of the low carbohydrate diet, and ketones are a part of this, as we get into talking about white and brown fat in a bit, insulin if insulin is addressed it gives you a little more wiggle room multiple studies now have shown that metabolic rate is increased when insulin is down and that has a fascinating history mind you but to me that's the power of the low carb diet you're controlling insulin and that can start to address all of those chronic diseases that we spoke about earlier because as insulin comes down insulin sensitivity is getting better in other words insulin resistance is going away but then the ketones themselves Once uh, literally considered metabolic garbage, that was a direct um, description of them from biochemistry texts once upon a time, we know them to be viable signaling molecules in their own right, improving. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. Mm -hmm. But so the low carb diet addresses the insulin angle of metabolic health and provides this kind of icing on the sugar free cake in the form of ketones, which elicits their own benefit independent of insulin.
0: Okay, so obviously, with, with the endocrine perspective, it's, it's far more comprehensive than just insulin, which is probably one of the most important hormones. But there's many other there are. Uh, that are influenced adversely when one follows a Jillian Michaels approach and essentially starving themselves, especially chronically. And I think, and I'd like you to address this too, but that that chronic keto actually runs similar problems because essentially, you, you know, I think there's dangers of going chronic low long term low carbohydrate, and I think you need to pulse it and cycle in it I'm pretty convinced of there's listening to a few of your podcasts that you're in agreement with that because it's all about cycling it isn't that mTOR is bad, and oh, yeah. you know it's, it's, it it's it has it has to be cycled in and out appropriately
1: yeah, so with regards to the cyclical nature of a low carb diet now as as a scientist, I wish there were longer term studies to to be able to conclusively say. You can't do this long-term or you can, but what, I, what I'm comfortable saying with, with a little bit of speculation is that if someone, uh, the body, the, the, the adherence, the avoidance of carbohydrates for a prolonged period will create the situation of a relative glucose intolerance. Now, I'm not going to say that that causes insulin resistance. Some people say you go low carb, that causes physiological insulin resistance. In fact, a lot of people that I I really know and respect say that. I don't like to say that Um, physiological insulin resistance is something else. Uh, To me, a low carb diet can create a situation of carbohydrate intolerance. And that is reflective of a general and, and very substantial shift in energy use. Insulin is down. And that means the body is in fat-burning mode. That is the absolute uh, bioenergetic fuel if insulin is low. You are fueled with fat. That can create a shift where the body becomes almost reluctant to fuel itself with carbohydrate. And so that's where you have instances of someone adopting a low-carbohydrate diet, and then they'll eat some carbohydrate load, and they'll say, well, my glucose levels, it's like I've become diabetic. That's not the same thing. they become glucose intolerant. And so if that's something someone wants to avoid for whatever reason, then, they, then, then a cyclical nature is probably the way to do that. You, you kind of spike in the glucose from time to time, maybe weekly, on whatever would work best for the person. I, I don't know if science uh, evidence to go one way or the other in confirming that, but, but the idea would be you kind of if you have that frequent enough exposure to the carbohydrate that you can maintain that tolerance to the carbohydrate if that's something that's important to the person.
0: So I kind of came across this through personal experience when I first started playing with ketogenic diet, uh, probably three or four years ago. And I noticed, and I was when I was really persistent, didn't understand the importance of intermittently cycling in carbohydrates. That my in my I had a low insulin level to begin with, and typically I would measure yeah. and it would be well below one. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I was very insulin sensitive. And after a while, I noticed that my, for no apparent reason, I mean, my carbohydrate level was very low, 20, 30, 40 grams, and my glucose would start to spike. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and then I started to understand that, that, and I want your feedback on this, that another role of insulin is that it's, it, it, it's actually important to suppress the liver's ability to produce glucose. So it impairs yep. gluconeogenesis. And if your insulin level's too low, it starts to, to secondarily go up high. So why don't you discuss yeah. that cycle? Because I think it's really, yeah. really, really
1: crucial. Right. Yep. Um, the, the, uh, some of the the main uh, met, uh, endocrine or hormone mediator of that process where, where a low-carb person can notice um, glucose levels coming up, and that is not a universal finding but it is definitely an anecdotal finding. I've heard enough people say that, that I think it has to be taken seriously. Nevertheless, um, glucagon starts to climb. And glucagon is the hormone that, whereas insulin's, one of insulin's main, main effects is to take the glucose from the blood or any fuel, uh, basically, and, and push it into the cells. Glucagon's the opposite. Glucagon wants to mobilize fuel from tissues and push it into the blood. And so one of glucagon's main actions is to promote um, the breakdown of stored glycogen and to promote the production of glucose in the liver. And so in that instance, perhaps, where insulin has gone you know, too low, um, then, then theoretically glucagon could go too high and that could be increasing uh, glucose too much. But again, I don't know of published evidence to support that, but I, there is evidence to uh, among many people, that glucose levels start to climb, and that's kind of reflective of that perhaps that intolerance that I mentioned. But there are um, you'd mentioned other hormones um, relevant mm-hmm. to chronic, uh, you know, kind of fasting or low carb, sorry, low calorie. Those kind of mild starvation diets, cortisol will go up, and and we know that people with long-term starvation, like anorexia nervosa, they have very high cortisol levels, and they're very insulin resistant. But cortisol, people always want to say, well, cortisol is going to go up in a low carb, and it doesn't. Uh, There have been clinical studies that have confirmed that cortisol stays pretty normal. So I just mentioned that one because that's kind of one that's low-hanging fruit. But with regards to the context that you mentioned of low carb and glucose climbing over time, it could be due to the lack of insulin and thus an an absence of the inhibition of glucagon production from the pancreas. And so the pancreas is making too much glucagon and that would be potentially driving up glucose levels.
0: Yeah, so thanks for explaining that because I wasn't aware of the glucagon connection, but that makes perfect sense. So admittedly, it's not a common complication and you have to have obsessive compulsive individual, (laughs) diligently to get that side effect. But nevertheless, it can happen. I think there's other more subtle uh, effects of chronically restricting carbohydrates such as its influence as a source of fuel for the beneficial bacteria in your gut which is so important
1: yeah that's yeah that's right uh, there uh, we the to me i can't speak too definitively at all authoritatively with mm-hmm. regards to the gut bacteria that to me is such a big black box it seems it seems the more we know uh, the more questions we have to answer but suffice it to say fiber is a fuel for gut bacteria and um the degree to which we need to eat it to promote you know uh, a diverse microbiota i don't know evidence on that to be to be perfectly honest but nevertheless we know for a fact those gut bacteria can use fiber um, as a fuel in in the way that the body can't now one thing that's at the risk of going on a weird tangent but i I just came back from this singapore Uh, kind of collaborating on this project. It was looking at the role of short-chain fatty acids Mm -hmm. in improving liver health. And while the human body doesn't get any energetic benefit from the fiber, the bacteria do. The bacteria are able to uh, use the fiber as fuel. And the product of that, one of the products, is short-chain fatty acids, like something like butyrate. And what's interesting is that as the fiber is being digested by the bacteria to create butyrate, the short-chain fat, that short-chain fat can get absorbed into the body. And then that goes into our bloodstream. Mind you, it goes right into the portal vein from the gut right to the liver. And now the liver has this kind of odd fat that it doesn't see very much of otherwise. And, and in that case, the liver actually, uh, short-chain fatty acids are so stimulatory with regards to mitochondrial um, biogenesis and, and fat use, promoting the increase of mitochondrial production, that it actually can combat fatty liver disease. So it's kind of a fun little paradox of Mm -hmm. using a fat to fight the fat that's stored in the liver in the case, in the form of fatty liver disease. But nevertheless, that's kind of an odd little um, connection between gut bacteria and, and liver health.
0: But, it, but it's an important one because uh, butyric acid is really similar to the ketone, uh, yep. hydroxybutyrate. So uh, it it's a good, offers a good opportunity to segue into that and uh, get your insights on the ketones. Because, uh, you know, keto, for those who don't know, I mean, I talk about it enough, but it's a short chain fat, typically two, three, or four carbons that are produced primarily in your liver. And uh, they can actually, they don't need a normal uh, like carnitine to be metabolized, but they do need uh, MCT, not MCT oil, but a monocarboxylase transport that puts it into the cell so it can use it. So why not, it, what is the difference between the butyric acid, the short-chain fatty acid produced by the bacteria in our gut, which is very beneficial? And my understanding it isn't absorbed too much. Most of, most of it is utilized actually locally by the by the entero. Uh, not enterocytes, the colonocytes.
1: Colonocyte. Yep, yep, you're right. Yep, that's exactly right. But yeah, uh, it's used for fuel, yeah, in the gut.
0: Yeah, so I mean, you do get some, and especially if you're making lots of it, it's even better. But what is this? What are the similarities between the butyric acid and, and uh, beta hydroxybutyrate?
1: Yeah, I think. Yeah, so um, beta uh, butyric acid, if I remember correctly, I think it's a four carbon fat. Does mm-hmm. that sound right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that. I think
0: it butyric. is. I'm pretty sure. Yeah,
1: and then and then um, beta hydroxybutyrate is directly derived from acetyl-CoA, this smaller um, two carbon, I okay. believe. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, so you have acetyl-CoA, which is sort of this, anyone who starts to take steps into nutrient biochemistry, which is a lot of fun, mm-hmm. they really realize quite quickly that acetyl-CoA is this just, like, this real kind of keystone molecule that's at the heart of a lot of biochemical processes. If you're breaking down glucose, um, into the mitochondria, you get to acetyl-CoA. If you're going to use lactate, lactate can be used as energy. It goes to acetyl-CoA. Lipid, when you start burning fat, it goes to acetyl-CoA. And then at acetyl-CoA, you can also branch out and create molecules depending on what the, the hormones are telling the body to do, the cell to do with the acetyl-CoA. And it is basically essentially insulin driven, but with some other fine tuning with other hormones. But You can take acetyl-CoA and create glucose out of it. You can create lipid out of it and you can create ketones. So in a state where insulin is low um, and the the liver cells are basically replete with with energy, with ATP, it, it closes off one pathway of using the ketones, the citrate cycle. And because insulin is low, the only other avenue is ketogenesis. And so we, we take the acetyl CoA, which is two carbon, we create acetoacetate, and then basically split that up into beta hydroxybutyrate, which is the main circulating form of ketone. So in the blood, if I remember correctly, it's like 70% beta hydroxybutyrate mm-hmm. of circulating ketone, and then 70, roughly 70% acetoacetate. And, and the brain, the neurons of the brain, can use both of those fuels roughly in those. Um, ratios or those proportions. Um, but yeah, butyrate and aceto, aceto, acetoacetate, the kind of mother um, ketone, they're, they're quite similar in structure. And that could be um, part of the redundancy that we see that a lot of where we see that what short chain fatty acids are doing, um, ketones are doing the same thing. And so, in that sense, if someone's trying to exploit the benefits of a ketone, Um, there could be an upside to just simply trying to get short chain fats in one way, of course, have your gut make it from fiber, but also in in an odd thing like I do, and and this won't be surprising to you, I actually drink apple cider vinegar every day.
0: And apple apple cider
1: vinegar is basically a short chain fat. You're taking the little fats. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And I just put it in a little bit of club soda um, with some ice, and I just sip on that thing, and, and I love yeah. it. My kids don't want to touch it, so it's all for daddy. Well, you can put on your salad, too. We actually make a
0: keto yep. cider vinegar, and actually, my favorite is the blueberry, so I have that pretty much every day.
1: That sounds delicious. Yeah, yeah it
0: is. I just I go through about a bottle a week, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I use it liberally, Yeah. but uh, I want to get to mTOR, which is uh, an acronym for mammalian target of rapamycin, or more currently, the mechanistic target of rapamycin, and it's such an important Pathway, and I was confused about it when I initially learned about it. I thought it should always be suppressed, and uh, it's so important because it controls this primary pathway in the body that's so crucial for health, which is apo- uh, autophagy. Yep, so if, if mTOR is low, you're going to have autophagy, if it's high it activates. It, it, it deactivates autophagy and you can't recycle your proteins, which is a problem. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? And I got very specific questions about autophagy and protein and fasting when you exercise and some, some of the practical implications of this information.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's just see how far I can take it. Um, with rego- You described it uh, very well. Um, What's important with regards to mTOR and its inhibition of autophagy is that because it inhibits autophagy, it is thought then to allow proteins and, well, just organelles, parts of the cells, to get basically old um, due to things like oxidative damage. And as those proteins are getting damaged, they're they're getting old, and then the cell, by extension, is getting old. And as the cells are getting old, so too is the organ and then the tissue, uh, the whole body. And so... A lot of the discussion with mTOR is that mTOR promotes aging because of that, because of its uh, inhibition on autophagy. Um, but but you're, you, you, what you said was right is that, uh, to me, the body has been designed with far too clever a scheme to have something that shouldn't be there. You mm-hmm. know, an mTOR is so fundamental to life that, that like you said, you can't just kind of go in and, and just try to smash it down and slam the brakes on it because that, that is death. Um, Mm -hmm. we have to grow, we have to allow a cell to grow and tissue to grow. And so, uh, this idea of kind of optimizing or strategically, um, focusing on boosting mTOR and then letting it come back down to kind of keep the body young, keep the cells cleaning themselves out through autophagy, this process of basically cleaning house. Um, and, and then you, you inhibit that and allow the body to grow with this cyclical spike of mTOR. And a lot of the focus, especially uh, to my chagrin, in all due respect um, to vegetarians, a lot of the focus among vegetarians is I've um, uh, come, been contacted uh, from, uh, by them, mind you, unsolicited contact. Uh, to, uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's this idea of, well, you got to avoid animal protein because it, it spikes mTOR. Um, that's the wrong way of looking at it. Uh, for those people who want to invoke the damages of mTOR in the body or the dangers of mTOR, then they have to then logically say, well, what spikes mTOR the most? And the longest insulin spikes mTOR far more than amino acids do. Um, a direct comparison in tissue has it insulin spiking mTOR about three or four times higher than the highest mTOR spiking amino acid, which is leucine. And so people want to avoid leucine, um, but no, uh, the, the, the thing about this is, you, so let's say you get done exercising and, and, and you take away protein, which is more enriched in leucine than, than other protein sources. Let's just say as an example, mm-hmm. or, or chicken breast or something high, good protein source, they have this nice big amino acid spike, and I think it's around like a 60 to 90 minutes, or maybe even 45 minutes. I think it's 45 minutes after they ingest that mTOR leucine starts to come up in the blood. mTOR starts to come up, and then it just comes right back down, because the proteins come in, it's been uh, digested into the blood, and then it's done. However, in our day and age, we we basically start our our day eating a starchy, sugary breakfast. You know, insulin spiking. You and I don't, but most people. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. But the majority of, of, I mean, you look at the the kind of global breakfast trends um, and it's going to be something starchy and sugary. So insulin will come up depending on the person. It can be up two to even four hours elevated. mTOR is active that whole time. Mm -hmm. And then right as the insulin's coming down, oh, well they have a mid morning snack, you know, (laughs) and of course it's another starch or it's another sugar. Insulin comes up again and it's up for hours. And of course, as insulin is up, so too is mTOR. That, I submit, is far more pathological. This chronic, basically every waking moment, mTOR activation because of insulin, rather than these intermittent spikes of mTOR because of the ingestion of a protein source.
0: Okay, let's talk about practical, too. Another really useful, important point, which is intermittent fasting, which is a window where you're not eating. I personally think that, uh, Anything at less than 12 hours isn't going to work. You really need, it's over 14. And my sweet spot is six to eight hours where you restrict your eating window. So 16 to 18 hours a day when you're not eating, which is what I personally do. And my, my window is closer to six. And, and, and this is one way to cycle it because your insulin level is definitely going to drop dramatically. And it's going to yep. give your body the opportunity to activate autophagy, to get it working, to recycle that junk out. And I'm, you know, now I've discussed this with Walter Longo in my previous interview with him, and he's done a, he wrote a book, The Longevity Solution, I think, or I forget the specific title of it, but he, he's, he, he really focused on the Mediterranean diet and followed and not ancestral, but cultures that followed this. And in his experience and viewpoint, he did not believe that it was historically relevant to intermittently fast. He thought it was actually harmful.
1: Hmm. But I'm
0: wondering from both your perspective as a scientist and other scientists, what your thoughts are on that because you know you've got a you've re- thoroughly researched the literature and i'm wondering what your personal views on the value of intermittent fasting and it, it and is it safe to do long
1: term yeah so from the context of controlling insulin there are studies in insulin resistant people where they are on isocaloric diets so same amount of calories. And one is eating them frequently in smaller amounts, and one is packing them in a smaller window, just like you described, this kind of time-restricted eating aspect, like an 18-6 type format. And those people on the time-restricted eating, that version of intermittent fasting had greater drops in glucose and insulin. That, to me, is the beginning and end. As a guy who basically... sees the relevance of insulin in any chronic disease. And again, it's not my opinion. That's very well validated. I just simply you know, want to ask what controls insulin. And boy, it is is—it is so intuitive that that would be the case. Simply give your body a break from eating. And I agree with the 12-hour. 12, 12 hours should be what everyone does every night of the week. Mm-hmm. Even if they're eating three full meals or whatever, at least get that 12-hour break for heaven's sake
0: sorry to interrupt, but 90%, nine out of 10 people don't do that in the U.S.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised, especially here. Me as a professor, I see these kids that live on cold cereal. They're eating cereal, basically three bowls of cereal at midnight. And what do they do? They have the same three bowls of cereal when they're you know 7, 8 a.m. And I hear them, of course, they're smug. Oh, I can eat whatever I want. I say, Come back to me in 10 years. That's how you're doing in 10 years, you t- smug 20 year old. Anyway, it's, it, it, you're right. I agree. Uh, it, it, it is, it is not, it is, we eat too late in the night. Uh, and, and if now let's say if someone, were going to have two hard boiled eggs as their 10 PM snack. Okay. You know, but no one's eating two hard boiled eggs yeah, at 10 PM. No, they, that's when they're scooping out the ice cream or if they're smart. I mean, if, if they're smart and yet, uh, have no, have not enough discipline to do any better. They're going to eat ice cream, but in a lesser case, they'll eat potato chips or crackers or sure. something. Yeah,
0: I think but I think these industrially processed vegetable oils may be actually more long-term pernicious than the sugar. I it agree completely. I, I, I totally agree. Those oils get integrated in the cell membranes, and that's a problem.
1: Yep. Yeah, and in fact, that starts to help us explain this apparent discrepancy where you know I'm talking about insulin control, and people want to start saying, "Oh well, then then you're you're poo pooing carbs." And then what about the Okinawans and what about the Kitavans and they eat and then those are that's a rational counter mm-hmm, sure, to what sure. I'm saying. That's a very appropriate rational counter. And so, me saying that in kind of an ugly little tone, I actually appreciate being called out in that regard, or the sentiment, uh, just kind of to balance this. And and I would say that in those instances, it probably then reflects on the fact that there's really two things to talk about: one, refined carbohydrates, and two seed oils which which I know you and I can see eye to eye on those seed oils are so surprisingly pathogenic in fact I've become so appreciative of them that we've just started a project in my lab I got a really sharp undergraduate who's focusing on the main oxidized product of seed oils when you look look at that main omega 6 and how it gets oxidized to this molecule called 4HNE we're yeah. looking at we're looking at how in muscle cell how it accumulates uh, is forcing these um, changes in the way the mitochondria are physically put together. You know, mitochondria love to be very dynamic. They're long and stringy, then they'll separate off into small pieces, then come back together. And that all has a very relevant physiological purpose with, this, with regards to cell growth and division. And yet, in the case of 4-H&E accumulation, that process gets stopped and now you've forced this sustained static state of the mitochondria, which is not healthy for them or the cell. And I, don't have, I can't say anything more about it yet just because we don't have all the data yet. Yeah, but well, it's coming.
0: I may have to catch up with you after, with me yeah. to complete that study. But I want to get back to the intermittent fasting and just to provide a little anecdotal support because I'm interviewing Jason Fung, who's a uh, friend of mine, next week for his new book. And uh, he published a, st- uh, a case report in British Medical Journal just uh, probably a month or two ago. Yep. With three, and maybe you saw it, where three patients he we reported were insulin dependent, not dependent, insulin, type 2 diabetics given insulin, which is, yeah, yeah, well said. is the standard of care. And uh, they all resolved with, I think, I don't even think he changed their diet too much other than compressed the eating window to six, eight hours. And they all resolved their diabetes. So In fact,
1: I, I think but, the one, I think he reported that the, one of them got off insulin within five days. So within within, within one week, yeah, I mean, they go, this is a person who goes from looking at that little syringe and bottle is thinking, this is the rest of my life, but just, I I can't, I'm not a physician, uh, but, but, and and I don't envy being a physician really, but that is one thing I envy the idea of, of looking at a patient when they come in for a repeat visit, who's so for so long, they've been used to all they ever hear is we need to up your dosage, up your dosage, up your dosage, and then suddenly get to the con, the, the, the condition where, Hey, you can actually stop taking the medication, man, yeah. what a wonderful feeling. Anyway, I think in the, in that case report, I think they said the fastest one of them was five days.
0: Yeah. These, these,
1: and every one of
0: those patients had been on taking insulin for 10 years or longer. That's crazy. So, I w- I'm just wondering what your personal impression is for the safety or the long-term potential adverse consequences of just doing continuous, you know, six-hour compressed in- eating
1: window. I I cannot think of any scientific reason why that would be bad. Okay, um, right, the, the only That's thing funny. I can, th- and, and I don't know of any evidence to su- suggest that it would be. I guess uh, my only concern, for, uh, uh, given my own temptations and even uh, anecdotal reports is that when the person stops that fast, they need to have that discipline that they've been exerting throughout the fast. And when they start eating, they've got to be responsible about it. You know, this idea that they just kind of go hog wild um, after that uh, 18 hour period is ended, um, you know, that's, of course, uh, counterproductive. But if the person can combine that structured eating window with a good, disciplined, healthy diet, but not counting calories at all just making sure they're nourishing the body properly then boy i I can't think of any reason why that would be harmful all right well i'm glad you're in agreement with that that was my conclusion too but you know you've researched
0: the literature pretty carefully and i value your insights on that yeah so another component is that i am uh, my next book comes out in may it's called keto fast which when i initially wrote the book was was designed to elaborate on the benefits of multiple day water fasting. And when I dove, dove into the research, I realized pretty quickly that that wasn't a good strategy. So I switched it to a partial fast. Ah.
1: And, the,
0: and so it basically the, the baseline is where people are doing a six hour compressed eating you know, for at least a month. So they're highly metabolically flexible or not insulin resistant. And yep. then they have a 600 a three to four hundred to eight hundred calorie meal, depending on their size, and that's the only meal they have for another twenty-four hours. So it's essentially it's a forty-two hour fast. Mm-hmm. The reason I mention this is not to promote the book because this is out for a number of months, but to get your insights on how long it takes to de- deplete glycogen in the liver. So how long it takes to deplete that? Because I think. You know, at six-hour compressed anyone, you still got significant amounts of glycogen left, especially if you've been doing it for a while. But when you add that other one, I know when I do this personally because I do it once a week, and that's the reason, one of the other reasons I like it because you're giving your body that some protein. Yeah. It's high protein, a little fat, and very little carbs. So you have the protein so that you can get phase two detox going and not get side effects from the liberated fat-soluble toxins. Uh, but then, you know, and I lose like five pounds every time I do this. Five yeah. pounds in one day—it's like consistently. There's not a day I don't lose five pounds when I do this. I'm wondering if you think that's related to the depletion of the liver glycogen, because it takes—what was what it like—at least 24 hours. Mm-hmm.
1: Least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So if you—if we were both right now, uh, let's say we were conventionally high-carb-fed people, a full liver, which—which which I think is around 100 grams of glycogen in the liver, depending on the person and the—you know—what the, they've sort of adapted to. Um, you know, endurance athletes, for example, could hold a little more, but nevertheless, if it's around hundred grams, we're typically going to burn through that in about 24 to 48 hours. That's that window of, mm-hmm. of getting through it. And mind you, that really kind of goes directly opposite to what ketones are doing as if a person is kind of high carb fed and they want to start dabbling with ketosis, they basically need to at least like totally restrict carbohydrates or fast for 24 hours, you know, And that's when the glycogen is basically kind of getting on that almost out, depending Mm -hmm. on the person. And then the ketones are suddenly starting to climb up to sort of take their place, to take glucose's place in the blood as a, as a, as a fuel. Um, But nevertheless, yeah, the 24 to 48 hours. So if someone just fasted for 24 hours, they're just basically getting through their glycogen. And then if they just go right back into a high carb day, well, then they never really quite got there. And so the, the scheme that you're proposing actually, I would say has some, uh, not, this wouldn't be a surprise to you. I'd say it's pretty rational from the perspective that, Hey, look, you're just, you're almost there, you know, you've almost depleted your glycogen. Don't stop. You know, you're really close. Yeah. So let's help you get through it. And, you know, nothing really satisfies like protein. So that, that's a pretty rational mm-hmm. focus on protein. Um, and then, and then it, you just sort of are able to f- finish out that last 24 hours to r- clear the liver you're solidly in ketosis by then, and uh, and mind you, as insulins come down, your 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 uh, your urine production starts to increase, and the kidneys, of course, are the site of cleaning the body. So you mentioned detox, and I don't know a lot of a lot about that, but boy, I mean, your best friend is helping the liver, helping the kidneys um, produce urine. I mean, if you talk yeah, detox, you certainly and, produce enough
0: of it when you're doing that. Yeah, no yeah,
1: question.
0: So th- we we talked a little bit about ketones, but I want to. Uh, delve into the point of the value that you can have by measuring because we also talked about insulin at the beginning the importance of that and that's really one of your factors, focuses and passion and the unfortunate thing about insulin is that you really need a doctor's order for the most oh, yeah. to test it and uh unfortunately there is a good surrogate marker for insulin which is our ketone levels because you cannot have high insulin if you have ketones yeah. So not you talk a little bit about that and the value of it. And incidentally, by the, the best ketone device that I know of is Keto Mojo because the the, the strips are only a dollar a piece.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So uh, yep. So so you mentioned these uh, blood ketone monitors, and and more and more they're really viable for anyone because the price is getting so affordable with Keto Mojo and the Precision Extra. Um, we use both of those in my lab when we have human subjects coming in. Um, uh, nevertheless, uh, yes ketones are an inverse indicator of what your insulin is. And and as much that is part of my interest in ketones, that was my initial interest in ketones. It was because it provided that immediate marker of what insulin is, even in a way that glucose cannot, you can have normal glucose levels and have insulin be elevated. And that won't tell you if you're insulin resistant you just need more insulin to keep your glucose normal. So you can't rely on glucose. And in a way, ketones then become more sensitive as a marker, a surrogate for insulin than, than even glucose is. But yeah, so over time, as someone's had their insulin levels in control for a sufficient period, period, their liver, as I mentioned earlier, is, is basically burning fat at such a high rate that it's burning more fat than it needs. And so the body has this very kind of clever release or exhaust valve, which is the production of ketones. And I say clever, and, and this kind of touches on uh, the, the kind of thermodynamics and the balancing of calories that I touched on earlier, where when you start making a lot of ketones, yes, you can f- detect them in your blood, you can prick your finger, and that is the best way to do it. But you can also detect ketones in your breath, and you can detect ketones in your urine. And that suggests a fascinating truth of the human body and metabolic function, which is you are spilling these pieces of fat into the atmosphere and we have to account for that spent energy. And so when people are trying to account for every single little calorie, well, then we have to say, well, are you counting for the ketones? Now that's not a significant, it's not a strong source of energy that's being wasted, but the fact of the matter is you do have a ketone is essentially a small piece of fat and you are breathing this out and you are urinating it out and that is a fat that otherwise would have been stored or have to be burned just for the sake of producing energy for the body, say in the form of ATP, the cellular energy. So we have to account for how energy is consumed, how it is used in the form of creating ATP or just body heat, and even that's relevant and up with in ketosis. But then third, this, for lack of a better word, this energy wasting, because ketones provide this, like I said, this kind of, this exhaust valve where the body's burning fat so high that it has more than it needs and it starts just moving it out of the body in the breath and in the urine. That needs to be considered or at least acknowledged that when we're trying to focus and just say, it's all a matter of calorie number, I don't disagree with that, but we need to make sure we're accounting for all the calories. And, and once again, um, that, to keep beating this drum, but insulin dictates how what the body does with the energy that it has, including producing ketones and having them basically be wasted from the body.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for mentioning, for discussing that. So another area of common confusion is exercise. Now, clearly the diet you eat and the food you choose to eat are going to be far more important than exercise, but I don't think you can ever achieve optimal health unless you integrate. And in listening to your previous podcast, I know you're a big exercise fan. So the practical question is, what do you eat? When do you eat when you exercise? Is yeah. it best to exercise fasting? The, 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 my conclusion is it is. And I exercise fast and I exercise early in the morning. That's not practical for a lot of people. You know, that's not good. They're not gonna be able to fit in their schedule. But for those who can, I think it's an ideal strategy. And so the, why don't you discuss that? And then I have some very specific questions about activating mTOR after that.
1: Okay, yeah. So I do have thoughts on that. Mind you, in the case of what you eat and when in regards to exercise, Boy, the, the, the research itself, I would, I would just say good luck to anyone trying to find a true consensus. Um, there, there's evidence on basically every side of the story with regards to every macronutrient. Um, let's just maybe touch on a couple. Um, with regards to protein, which is without a doubt relevant to someone who's exercising endurance or resistance exercise, you need to make sure you get enough protein. It appears to be that there's no magic window with that, that basically, if, if someone's eating protein, they don't have to get it 45 minutes after their workout or an hour after their workout that essentially if within a 24 hour window, if they've eaten sufficient protein, then, they, then they're okay. Now, with regards to carbohydrate, um, there was a very neat study done in, with college students where they had them exercise and then their next meal was a carbohydrate rich meal. In, that, in one group. And the other group, I think, fasted through that next meal. And the group that ate a carb or, – or they eat a lower-carbohydrate meal. I'm sorry, I can't remember that specific detail. But, but And that is a relevant detail. But the group that ate the high-carb diet, the improvement in insulin sensitivity, the high-carb post-exercise meal, I should say, they did not have an improvement in insulin sensitivity. By ending their exercise and then the next meal being a high-carb meal – They actually that undid the improvements in insulin sensitivity from the exercise itself. Now that has ramifications because so often someone gets done exercising and they reward themselves with something like a you know a a juice you know at some smoothie joint or they indulge themselves they they treat themselves with some carbohydrates thinking well I I spent it so I need to eat it. What a shame! Uh, What a shame where they are directly preventing some of the insulin sensitizing benefit of the exercise because of what they ate now like you i actually prefer to exercise fasted i i find i just simply feel better i don't like having something in my gut when i'm trying to push my blood to my muscles and that's what's happening the reason you know when someone they're you know, their muscles get a little loaded when they're exercising or bigger and swollen. It's because we're pushing blood to those muscles. That is blood that has to come from the gut. And so you basically are creating this little war, this hemodynamic war where during exercise and yet having eaten something, your body's thinking, well, wait a minute, I need to be sending blood to my guts to help move this food through through the intestines and digest it. But now my muscles are active, so I got to push the blood to my muscles. And so you're creating this, this, this split of, of forcing the body to kind of prioritize where the blood wants to go. But if you leave the food in the guts, of course, that's going to um, start to develop some GI discomfort. So, but even still, despite all of that, I just simply prefer to exercise in a fasted state. I like the idea that I'm just simply um, using energy, of course, at a higher rate. Anyone would be when they're exercising. And because my insulin is so in control in it, because I'm in a fasted state, I'm really just burning fat like gangbusters.
0: Okay, well, let's address a, a special group, which is me and many of my viewers. You know, this year I'll be 65, so sarcopenia or the loss of muscle mass as you grow older is a real issue. So it becomes ever more important to make sure that you're maintaining your muscle mass. So resistance training, which I know you're a fan of, is, becomes even more important. So do you think there's any value to, I mean, you have the compressed eating window, so you're relatively low in glucose. Insulin's pretty sensitive. Do you think there's any value to spiking insulin with some fruit, you know, like a tangerine, a few tangerines to spike up your insulin level to get to, to replenish your carbohydrate stores and do heavy resistance training? Because I noticed that if I do that, I could lift heavier. I can go, you know, 30, 40 pounds heavier on my deadlift than I can without that. So I'm wondering what your views are on that perspective.
1: Yeah, boy, um, what, a, what a great question. Um, I don't know of evidence that's looked at um, kind of spiking strategically spiking in carbs. There is, there are studies on both aerobic and resistance training to show no loss of function in the people that were adhering to a ketogenic diet, even in the absence of a carbohydrate spike. So I'd say scientifically um, they, a person should be able to perform um, just as competitively as ever. But, and we know that muscle glycogen is actually normal, so muscle glycogen is not lower in a someone who's even an athlete who's adhered to a ketogenic diet. Despite the absence of carbohydrate, the muscle will get what the muscle wants.
0: Interesting, Interesting. And that
1: includes glycogen. Um, and they recovered the glycogen just as quickly, frankly, from an exhaustive bout of exercise mm. uh, of aerobic exercise. So muscle glycogen is comparable. And that could be why, at least in the research performance doesn't appear to be compromised. Um, but even still, even still, I, I, I'm always quick to say, that doesn 't mean someone might not simply feel better um, and, and so I would say like the, in your case you've you've experimented and man that yeah. is the best thing to well, do but,
0: but it could be a placebo effect it's just very powerful you know in and, and a belief system that uh, yeah. might cause you to have enhanced performance because you believe so I mean the mind is a very powerful tool
1: <laughs> yeah well and it could be that there is just in fact some um, gratification some some pleasure from enjoying the carbohydrate and let's admit it carbohydrates are yeah yeah yummy. They're they're we so about. that could just be something that kind of gets you going uh, enough um, just by um, basically activating pleasure sensors um, but nevertheless yeah uh, I, I don't know of the research that would um, confirm or, or kind of deny that except for the fact there's couple studies showing that there's no loss of function
0: all right well I'm going to go in there with a, a, a resolved placebo component yeah, <laughs> back yeah. to you on the on the, the observations I make but another question is the opportunity to activate mTOR. And you mentioned that you can do it within that 24-hour period. And of course, the most uh, activating amino acid is leucine, which yeah. interestingly, actually, and I don't understand how this, maybe you can discuss it, how leucine actually activates autophagy because it would seem counterintuitive. It's activating mTOR and autophagy at the same time because hmm. mTOR is inhibiting it. Yeah. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the, on the amount of leucine, you know, in, in, a, in a branch or branching amino acids as, as a way like seven grams or so and if HMB hydroxymethylbutyrate is a good substitute for that because it's my understanding that that's one of the breakdown products of leucine, then you can sort of take that one directly and buy oh, what,
1: yeah what great questions I love this is really practical stuff for people, which I, I, I'm glad that we can talk about. Now my answers are based I, basically entirely on the work of Stuart Phillips out in, um, I, I think he's in Montreal. Uh, Stewart, if you ever hear this, I'm sorry if I got it wrong. But uh, he's, a, he's a professor who studies muscle protein synthesis. And he's had some fascinating data, um, which basically answers every question you just asked. One, <laughs> one you can take um, college-age males and put them on a protein-deficient diet. So we know they're not eating enough protein. Mind you, a lot of people aren't. And we can detect that functionally at the muscle by confirming the the, the, the muscle's ability to create protein which is the substance and strength of the muscle? It's based on that. Um, is compromised in, in these protein deficient states. All they needed to do was give them. I think it was five grams of leucine. And even though they weren't eating enough protein, that five grams of pro, uh, five grams of leucine was enough so that their muscle protein synthesis was as maxed out as the high protein group.
0: So yeah, interesting.
1: so to high me. Gram. That's it. Yep. So that creates a nice number that we can kind of work around, which is that five grams of leucine. Now it was his group or another group, but I heard him say it HMB, that more expensive metabolite of leucine is totally redundant in that if someone's getting leucine, the HMB has no additive effect. So you have people that are taking both leucine and HMB. You can put the HMB to the, leave it on the store shelf, don't spend that higher amount. It is more money than leucine. Just get stick with the leucine because the HMB had no additive effect over the leucine itself.
0: Interesting. Could but could it be an effective substitute? And and there are there any additional benefits do you think? Because it's it's a form of butyric acid, it would seem, yeah, or butyrate.
1: Yeah, good well, yeah, good question. I don't know. I don't know whether there are inherent benefits over the HMB rather than just getting a leucine and letting the leucine become HMB, but it is reflective what you just mentioned. Leucine is one of the so-called ketogenic amino acids that it can in fact take that carbon skeleton of the leucine and turn it into a ketone. You know, some, some amino acids um, are, are referred to as, you know, they're, they're glycolytic where they can come in and basically turn into like alanine. It can readily turn into glucose as needed. Leucine is one of the ketogenic ones, and it can turn into ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate in particular. So, I'd say if there is any benefit to HMB, you're going to get that anyway because the leucine is going to become okay. HMB. Well, that's I, good I, to know. I, I to you, but I'm just—I'm submitting that I don't know of data to confirm that. Okay. And what
0: about the uh, potential paradox of leucine, both stimulating autophagy and mTOR? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, so i would not. I've never heard of the data. In fact, I'm going to make a note to look at leucine's activating autophagy. I would suspect it depends on um, other variables. I just think there has to be some other variables, some other instruments in the orchestra. But the fact that leucine is ketogenic and ketones activate autophagy, that could be the pathway. Okay. That makes sense. Now, here's another
0: practical question because, and I'm sure you're a fan of this too, is collagen. Not any collagen. It has to be clean collagen because I would say the vast majority, over 50% of the collagen on the market is absolute garbage and is toxic because they're extracting, or extracting it from chicken in China that is full of toxins. So you want to stay away from it. So the sure, first step is to make sure it's high quality. But if you have high quality real deal collagen, then it's a source of amazing uh, amino acids for your connective tissue, and it'll help prevent injury. But here's the question. So, I mean, you I take personally about 20, 30 grams of, uh, probably 30 grams of a collagen protein a day, but there's very few branched chain aminos in that. So do you think there's that it makes rational sense to differentiate a collagen protein from your regular protein and because you do want, you don't want to have excess protein, but it would, would it, you almost get a pass with the collagen.
1: Yeah, well, uh, collagen does not create uh, a; f- it does not have the full complement of amino acids to be considered a, f- a complete protein. But but it's a different um, bunch of amino acids. One in particular is hydroxyproline, mm-hmm. and hydroxyproline is one of the main um, building blocks for collagen in the body. Now, I of had people kind of challenge that idea and say, well, but when you eat these, these protein, and even in the form of collagen, it will degrade into the amino acids, and the body will just kind of choose whatever amino acids it wants to put back together to make whatever proteins it wants. And that's generally true. But there was a very neat rat study, and we just have to assume the same thing holds in humans. And I think it's a safe assumption here, and that's not always a safe assumption, um but they they inf- they had the rats eat a, a radio labeled hydroxyproline, so they could basically follow that hydroxyproline around mm-hmm. and sure enough, it went to the skin and to the connective tissue they could detect so that's they could detect where it was enriched, and it was all this connective tissue rich or collagen rich tissue in the body and so I am an advocate of collagen, like you say, um scrutinize the source uh of the collagen that's appropriate. And and the evidence supports it, uh, especially that's relevant to someone who adheres to a low carb diet. Vitamin C is called C, C for collagen. And um, what's important is that if you're eating less vitamin C, it's comforting to know that you're base you're fulfilling that need essentially by getting um, uh, not only the, the collagen itself from the meat the the meat that you're eating that connective tissue and that hydroxyproline and the other amino acids relevant to collagen but also carnitine, which is relevant to the function and production of collagen within the body. So even a low-carb person who's avoiding vitamin C, um, they, can, they can kind of rest assured their joints and connective tissue are going to be okay because they're actually just directly eating what they need rather than having the body make what they need um, with the help of vitamin C.
0: Yeah. The other really important amino acid there is glycine, the the smallest amino acid. I think it just has one hydrogen as as an attachment. So, uh, but the benefit of that is in twofold. One is that it can displace some of the potential damage for the massive exposure we have to glyphosate, especially if you're not eating organic. And then secondly, it's a really important precursor uh, for uh, maybe even a rate limiting step for glutathione, which is one of the most important intracellular antioxidants.
1: Yeah, and whey, mind you, whey protein has a potent effect on increasing glutathione as well. Oh, sure.
0: All right. Well, we we boy, you really helped uh, provide us with a load of information. Are there any other items you'd want, would like to share with us, or is uh, uh, an interest that you have now, or other research other than the four uh, four HNE that you're
1: working on? Yeah. With? Yeah. Well, boy, next time next time um, I'm on. Um, we'll have published not only probably the four HNE paper, depending on data, um, a neuron study where we're looking at uh, the effects of ketones, beta hydroxybutyrate on enhancing memory and cognition. It's a fascinating study that we're doing now. And then, and that's my PhD student doing that project. Then my third project, almost done, my, my master student is looking at how ketones increase metabolic rate in the body by activating uh, metabolism in fat tissue. So it's basically amping up the metabolic rate in our fat tissue itself, making the fat cells less inclined to store fat and more inclined to just burn through the fat. So all that, of these are three upcoming studies. Does that have to do with conversion of white fat to beige or brown? Or? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. So we've, uh, we have data from cells, data from rodents, and now we're getting data from humans that are in and outside of ketosis. And they come in and we just pull fat biopsies from next to the abdomen or next to the, the navel in the abdomen, and just subcutaneous adipose. And we measure how how rapidly the mitochondria are using oxygen. And then we're measuring gene expression of um, genes relevant to white and brown fat.
0: Yeah. Well, we definitely should do, do a follow-up because that's a really fascinating topic in getting to the cold thermogenesis and all yep. the, the benefits of mitochondrial encoupling and, and all that, that fun that's stuff. That's it.
1: Yep. Yep. So basically the essence is ketones are kind of doing what the cold is doing. Excellent.
0: All right. Well, I thank you for your time and your expertise and sharing your wisdom with us and giving us some practical pearls that we can apply
1: to stay healthy. Yeah. Well, Dr. Mercola, thank you so much for the invitation. I had a great time and we covered some good topics. I hope the listeners have learned something new.
0: Great. Well, thank you.